Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Heyo. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we are joined by special guest Faria Mohudin. Hi there. Faria has a master's degree in global affairs and is currently living in Berlin, where she works as the senior program officer for the International Budget Partnerships Tax Equity Initiative. That is a mouthful, Faria. She <laughs> has been working on tax and development and tax justice issues for the last eight years. How's it going? Great. Uh... It's uh, something to hear your tax nerdery, you know, being revealed for the world. But uh, yeah, I'm very <laughs> happy to be here and be talking to you both. I mean, I'm really excited to talk. This is actually one of the most interesting topics and I know like the least about it, which is why it's hilarious that I'm taking the lead on this one, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be in the back heckling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, please heckle me. I, <laughs> I imagine there'll be quite a bit of that. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. So I wanted to start with a fun fact, and then I was going to lead into asking Faria all sorts of questions about tax and why it's so broken. So my fun fact is from the Tax Justice Network's website. It's estimated that at least 10% of the world's wealth is hidden in tax havens, but it's basically impossible to measure, and the Tax Justice Network feels this estimate is too low. So that was a mood that I had. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. So I wanted to jump right into it for Rhea by asking you, what is tax justice? Question mark. Question question mark. Um, (laughs) So I mean, going with that fun fact, right? So there's 10% of this wealth that's hidden. Uh, supposedly, we we don't know if it's 10%. We're estimating it's 10%. So 10% of that wealth is not being taxed. So tax justice asks, let's tax that wealth and put it back in the jurisdictions from which they're being hidden, right? So tax evasion and avoidance robs often the world's poorest people, but I mean, even in Canada, it robs just regular Canadians um, of tax revenue and let the rich get even richer. So tax justice seeks to restore the taxes to whom they are due. Right. And it's um, it's a central concern for anyone working on social justice because tax systems are the thing that pays for public services, social protections and, you know, the basic redistribution of equity within our societies. So, you know, that it's really like uh, how do I put it? It's like the unsexy math that makes social justice work in a lot of ways. So that's what tax justice is. So. I wanted to ask, like, just so that our audience can get a better idea of who you are, because Kristen and I already know you and we both love you. (laughs) Uh, So to lead into kind of your amazing personality, I was going to ask you what drew you to tax justice to begin with? Why is this something that you are interested in working in? And what work have you done in the past? Sure. Um, Yeah, we had our first meeting iconically at Mushi's in London. Uh, just off Brick Lane, if I <laughs> if I remember, um, never forget. Um, <laughs> but, um, what drew me into tax justice? Well, I mean, in general, I have always been like a politics development nerd, and you know, I was asking this question to myself: you know, why are countries different? Um, a little bit of background: I grew up in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, which is a country that was founded in 1971. 
And my family is now Canadian, but originally from Bangladesh, another country uh, that was founded or became independent in 1971. The UAE is one of the richer countries out there, oil, money, this, that, and the other, whereas Bangladesh until very recently was consistently one of the poorest countries. So what could, you know, what explained that differential? And, you know, through doing my bachelor's in IR, and sorry, international relations, apologies for the acronym. (laughs) And then going into my master's, you know, you get these questions of like, well, you know, governance is different. The quality of public services is different. And um, on this note of public services, you know, when we think about what does it mean to be a developed country? Like when you ask someone, what does a developed country look like to you? I think the, the, you know, lay person or the regular people will talk about public services. It means like you have good roads, you have good schools, good hospitals, um, you know, low, low corruption, public, a public administration that can be trusted. Right. And so it's like, the question is, how do you get to that? How does that happen? And a key part of that is our tax systems. And, you know, so that led me into uh, first tax and development, which is, you know, how do you build tax systems in developing countries so that you can get closer to the outcomes that we have in developed countries? And then, That also then led me further into tax justice because it's great. You can have these tax systems, but if it's operating in a global system of injustice, you could have the most perfect tax system in a developed, in a, sorry, in a developing country and still not get those outcomes because there are these larger global forces at play. So that's, that's basically how I ended up you know, uh, de- you know, dedicating my life to this cause. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, I don't know, it sounds pretty noble. <laughs> don't, don't make my head swell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is like our number one goal on this, on this show, I think. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, that's a really, that's a really beautiful answer. And I think it really encapsulates kind of the problems that we're going to discuss moving forward in this. So my next point of discussion was going to be what is tax evasion what is tax avoidance and i wanted to start by giving you an idea of what i think it is and then maybe have you come back and tell me like yes you're right because i feed off of that energy <laughs> <laughs> so i'm going to read this little blurb that i wrote here for you guys so what i wrote for for my own understanding of what tax evasion is it's it's when people deliberately misrepresent their financial affairs to tax authorities in order to pay few or, in Donald Trump's case, basically no taxes, uh, which is a federal offense in the USA, for just in case anyone was wondering. Uh, it's election <laughs> day today, actually. Happy uh, – well, I don't know if it'll be happy, but – Happy. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Happy this episode, question mark. Yeah, happy question mark. <laughs> We're still blissfully ignorant when this is going, uh, being recorded in two weeks when it comes out. Who knows how we're going to be feeling, but... Yeah, we, we might know, we might not. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, it's a federal offense in the US, although, I mean, maybe it's not anymore since it's endorsed by the current president, um, so that's cool. Uh, this is different than tax avoidance, which, as far as I understand, is technically legal, but still supremely dodgy when performed by huge companies or the ultra-wealthy, at least in my opinion. Um, but I'm not really sure how these things work. I'm not rich enough to have ever needed to look into hiding money. I've never had, like, a trust fund. don't really understand any of it. So 
If you're a regular person avoiding taxes by slipping some funds into a tax-free savings account, that seems fine, question mark. But if you're a billionaire not paying taxes because you're, you've moved all your money into an offshore account or a shell company, which again, I also don't fully understand, but that's where things kind of go sour from like my, my perspective. But also, I don't know things. So, uh, and I never read the Panama Papers. I just know they were a big deal. Pour your knowledge into my ears, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, well done. That's broadly right. Um, so there you go. <laughs> you get your gold star. <laughs> yeah, so tax tax evasion is exactly right, where you're misrepresenting your tax affairs or you're outright not paying taxes, and this is definitely illegal. And to be fair, tax evasion is less common than tax avoidance. Tax avoidance is as you put it, like it's like these clever accounting practices, right? It's um, getting, putting your assets into a trust. It's getting a shell company to, that's in, a shell company that's incorporated in a low tax jurisdiction to buy your house so that when you pay your property taxes, it's being paid in a place where maybe property tax is 0%. I know I've just said a bunch of jargon, so let me, let me backtrack and, and explain. <laughs> so like I said, tax evasion, is when you're really outright not paying taxes, definitely illegal. Tax avoidance is what you said, like, you know, you kind of have to be rich enough to do it, right? You need to be rich enough to have lawyers and accountants who say things like, okay, instead of you uh, paying your income taxes or getting all your uh, income as wages, which would then be subject to the personal income tax that we all seek out of our paychecks, they might advise you, uh, if you're ultra rich, why don't you ask for that as shares of the company that, you know, your big multinational corporation. Now, if you get your some of your income as shares, you can use your lawyers and accountants to, say, create a company that is in somewhere in the Caribbean, famous for having low taxes. And have the company hold uh, those shares for you. you. You give the company those shares, right? Now, as far as the tax authorities are concerned, the income that comes from the shares, the profits that you get from the shares, are happening where? In the Caribbean. And if the income tax there is zero, well, there you go. You don't have to pay any taxes on that income, right? Um, and so thereby you have avoided paying income taxes on a share of your income because it's not being given to you as wages. So that's what basically like people, people personally do. The way this works in uh, large corporations is what Apple, Facebook, um, Amazon to a certain extent, but Apple and Facebook, let's take them. They're the most famous examples. What they do is they say, well, we're Facebook USA, but all of our shares are basically held by Facebook Ireland. But in Ireland, we not only does Ireland have a low corporate tax rate, it also has special deals that it strikes with Facebook to say, okay, for all the income you earn as a corporation, because you're headquartered here, we will charge you or we will not levy any tax on you. Allowing Facebook or Apple or whomever to retain their profits wholly. So that's where you get those numbers where it says like, yeah, Facebook made like, I don't know, $10 billion in profit and got 
uh, had to pay 0% tax, you know, because they incorporated themselves using lawyers and tax accountants to be owned by a company in a low tax jurisdiction. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What, why would Ireland do that? What's the benefit to them? Oh boy, this is subject to some debate. So there's this, um, the conventional wisdom is that if you uh, can attract a large corporation to your jurisdiction, that they will um, invest in the infrastructure of that place. So if you're a big corporation, uh, the idea is that you will probably you know, invest in education so that you can create a pipeline of workers, that you will invest in maybe health infrastructure or in transport infrastructure because it's in your interest for people to be able to come to work or what have you, you know? And you kind of saw this with like all the hubbub, I think a year and a half ago about Amazon HQ2. So, you know, they were like, oh my God, if Amazon comes to our our state, our city or whatever, there's going to be all this infrastructure because infrastructure investment because Amazon's going to bring people into this town. We're going to have to build housing. Uh, there'll be incentives for de- developers to build houses. They'll build like transport infrastructure around it. There'll be like schools that will need to be built. And, you know, we'll all have all this infrastructure. Great. Which, fine, yes. However, in order to attract them, governments then say, hey, we won't charge you any income tax on the first 10 years you're in our jurisdiction. Yeah, I think wasn't with Amazon HQ2, I think Toronto was like the only city that bid that didn't offer tax concessions. I might be wrong on that. but Yeah, possibly. I mean, that was that was like the big news, right? Like cities were offering like ridiculous, ridiculous tax incentives, you know, like <laughs> you won't have to pay property tax, you won't have to pay income tax. Uh, in fact, we'll subsidize you to the tune of 10,000 US dollars per worker that you hire. So this is the conventional wisdom, right? Like you get these companies to come over and they'll do all this um, investment. However, Tax Justice Network, the IMF and McKinsey, which are strange bedfellows, all have done research (laughs) to show that that isn't the case. That by bringing companies in, you don't actually contribute to the growth of your country. Like you, it doesn't actually contribute to GDP growth. And also companies don't make um, their decisions about where to move based uh, on those kinds of incentives. There are actually other things that go into companies making those decisions. So this big um, kind of, I guess, like horse and pony show about, oh, yes, like what incentives shall you give me? You know, the rose ceremony um, is, is all a big ploy to get tax concessions out of governments. So is is that, um, Priya, is that because like um, they can incorporate in one place, but they may not necessarily need to like move a lot of their operations there and like employ people there? Or, or um, why doesn't that logic hold up? Yeah, th- that's, that's absolutely it. Because, you know, there's nothing stopping them from, yeah, like setting up an office with say five people in, in Ireland. I mean, they do often do a lot more because, uh, in order to get those incentives, the government will say, like, you need to have minimally, like, say, 5,000 people here. But if you're a 50,000-person organization, you put your minimum 5,000 in Ireland and then make sure that all the other companies around the world where you actually want your employees are owned by that Irish entity. 
So, so that's also how they get away with it. But yeah, I mean, so the logic in Ireland uh, is that, oh yeah, the Irish tiger, as it's called, the Celtic tiger started roaring because they did all of this. Um, they did all these um, tax packages to large tent companies and large multinationals. And that's why Ireland, you know, was the economic miracle of the of the late 1990s. But if you now look at the economic data, and then there have been papers written about this, the Irish tiger started roaring much earlier and much before they started doing this. And also probably had something to do with like the Easter agreements or whatever. <laughs> yes. And, you know, this uh, this little thing called being in the EU. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> and then moving towards that. What What does it mean when I've never heard that phrase, the Irish tiger is roaring? It's a very common phrase in the late nine, 1990s to talk about this wave of growth you saw in Ireland, but also in places like Thailand, uh, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, you know, these like uh, economic tigers starting to roar. And so it was like the Asian tigers and then the Celtic tiger. Okay, my friend, my best friend is from Ireland, and he's probably very mad at me right now for not knowing that. <laughs> it's also a very like economics, politics nerd thing, so do not do not uh, feel too bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So I I kind of understand what the reasoning is then for why countries will allow this sort of practice to happen, even though obviously the numbers don't agree with the logic, but that often is the case in politics. Cool. Um, <laughs> why then is it such a huge problem for companies to be hiding in countries that don't take taxes? Like, why is it such a problem for companies to not pay taxes in the countries where they operate? Who is hurt by 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 this? Say it's a Canadian company, right? That's incorporated elsewhere, so that doesn't have to pay taxes in Canada. The everyday Canadian is hurt, right? Because we pay taxes. It, you know, I, I like to think of taxes as a subscription fee to live in a society. So right now I live in Germany and I get premium social services, you know, societal services. So I don't mind having a relatively higher tax burden than when I lived in Canada. But also when I lived in Canada, I didn't mind paying taxes because I was like, oh, my, my subscription services like healthcare and uh, subsidized education you know, I'm I'm on board for this. And so when people avoid taxes, it constitutes a theft from society. And let me explain further. So there's like three three main things about this, you know, because people like to say like, oh, well, a business is owned by someone who's worked really hard, you know, or started by someone who's worked really hard. Why, um, why shouldn't the rich who have worked really hard, allegedly, why don't they deserve to keep their money? So there's, you know, so the three things are, if you're making money because you own a business in Canada, how does this business actually work? So if you have educated workers in the context of Canada, they're often educated at public schools or at public universities, which are paid for or subsidized by what? Our taxes. If your workers are healthy, that's because the healthcare system in Canada also paid for by taxes. If your workers can get to work and your goods can be shipped, brought to market using transport like roads and transit like the subway or the go train or what have you taxes are paying for that infrastructure taxes have paid for that infrastructure if you have intellectual property if you have contracts that are being enforced and protected taxes pay for the legal system taxes pay for the courts right so and then also there's this idea of 
you know, the rich work hard. So this is the second point, the rich work hard. The truth of it is that the rich aren't working hard at all. So now to switch to an example of the U.S. because we don't have the numbers for Canada quite yet. This is uh, Gabriel Zuckman, uh, the famous guy who wrote that giant book, Capital. Uh, the, the top 0.1% of income earners earn two-thirds, fully two-thirds of their income from capital and only one-third from labor. So this is what I was talking about earlier when you ask for your income to come in shares versus wages. So, you know, capital is shares, properties, other assets like art, gold, uh, that kind of thing. And capital is very undertaxed compared to labor. Sorry, Faria, this this might be a, a, just a small point, but is that not Piketty's book you're talking about? Oh, yeah, sorry. Zuckman and Piketty and Saez, these are three guys that like all work together. Absolutely, so I yeah. Always, like, <laughs> I like always interchange them. Thank you for the correction. No worries, no worries. <laughs> no, no, no. But they're, you know, they're these like uh, French dudes at Berkeley out here telling the world what's what. <laughs> but yes, you're, you're absolutely right. But this is, I just wanted to cite that it's Gabrielle Zuckman's uh, um, work that I'm citing here. Mm, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no worries. So capital is very undertaxed compared to labor. So for example, if you think of like what property taxes are versus how much you're taxed on your paycheck, right? Property taxes tend to be in most places like 1% to 2.5%. Whereas on, on your income, you're taxed what? Like uh, the average... Effective tax rate in Canada, I think, is about 30%, right? So if you think about that difference, um, most of capital is taxed at, you know, less than 10%. So it really helps rich people to hold their money in that way and then get income off of it. Like, you know, think about rental properties. If you own like 100, right, and you're really only paying a fraction um, of what you would pay if you were getting that as like straight wages, you're able to, I'm not going to say hide money, but basically escape the tax net. And then even if we did tax it properly, right, we allow people when they're rich enough to use tax accountants and lawyers to use clever accounting tricks and practices like, as I mentioned, setting up shell companies and using trusts to hold their capital, further avoiding taxation. So in another way, you know, the working man or person is way overtaxed compared to someone rich that owns a bunch of properties or shares held in companies or in trusts. Workers are subsidizing the rich and not the other way around, like, you know, the common wisdom. And uh, last but not least, inheritance. Generational wealth is a huge, huge way that taxes are being avoided and it constitutes a problem, right? So for example, you know, in my first bit where I'm like, oh, you're a business owner, you've used all these investments and in infrastructure to create your wealth, then you stick it in a trust, you know, in a, you turn it into shares, stick it in a trust, and then your kid, when you die, inherits it, and that none of that is taxed, right? So not only did you do some thieving while you were alive, you have now allowed for thieving to occur after you've died. Intergenerational thieving and or wealth, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> because we very rarely tax inheritances and we also, we very rarely tax uh, trusts properly. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, like the most famous example that I can think of, which goes, because I was, I remember reading this and just being so mad, like <laughs> incandescent rage. The Duke of Westminster in 2016 dies. So his son gets to be new Duke of Westminster. Because all their properties, and they're one of the richest families in the UK, 
um, was held in trusts. This guy, he was like 22 at the time or something. The, the new Duke of Westminster inherited nine billion pounds of wealth. Oh my gosh. <laughs> nine billion pounds. Yes. Uh, and yeah, uh, very little got taxed. You know, and this is, and when I say it's generational wealth, like this is a duke, right? So I'm talking, this dude <laughs> has been inheriting wealth. It's the literal aristocracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like since, since, you know, as far as we know, Camelot, you know? <laughs> you know, and that, that, and that really is wealth and money that belongs to the British people, to the UK. Can I ask some questions about trusts? Because I, I'm boggled by them. Do you not pay taxes when you pull money out of a trust? So you do, but it's taxed very differently. So uh, it's taxed often quite low. And a lot of that is because of what gets put into trust. So inheritance is one of the biggest things that get put into trusts, right? And the idea of inheritance, the idea of passing your wealth down is uh, something that is so connected to our ideas of self, our ideas of family, our ideas of legacy. So politically and emotionally, it's very, very, very hard to push for proper taxation of trusts. Because, I mean, of course, this like uh, Duke of Westminster business, we get mad about because it's such giant amounts of wealth. But if, you know, they've, there's been polling done when you uh, ask like regular people, people think, oh, my God, like if I leave my, I don't know, $100,000 to my child in a trust, uh, the government's going to come take this money that I've like earned over my lifetime and want to give as a gift to my children. You know, it's very uh, difficult politically. Do you think that's um like a product of us sort of giving up on the narrative? Um I recently read um, the, the Triumph of Injustice, and that was sort of one of the big takeaways that I got in that book was like, we used to actually think that paying taxes was a good thing socially. And like, I'm sure people still didn't like paying money, but there was a like widespread belief in um, what taxes accomplished and a sense that like you should pay your fair share. Um, do you think that like public opposition to inheritance taxes and things like that is sort of a product of us not like fighting that rhetorical fight anymore or I don't know what what do you think's behind it I, I think I think you're getting right at it you know um there's a great report uh by tax justice UK it's called the public attitudes uh report which which where they asked focus groups uh these sorts of questions and and that's absolutely it so there's a few things happening one is that we've accepted that being rich lets you uh, buy out of the system. Like, so even if the system is good and can meet your basic needs, we can now see that being rich secures you even beyond that, right? Yeah, getting on your like COVID yacht or whatever. <laughs> exactly, getting on your COVID yacht. And so people are like, well, if I can get at that, if I can, even, not, even if I don't provide it for myself, give my children an opportunity at that, right? Why wouldn't I do it, right? And um, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's that idea of like, is it fair? Is the system fair? Is the system fair because rich people clearly have it so much better? So if rich people get to kind of exit or play uh, fast and loose with the rules, why shouldn't I? I'm the little guy. 
you know? It really, it really gets into that area of um, narratives. You know, I don't even know what to attitudes, perceptions. You know, which is a lot uh, trickier to get at than like laws and policy. Yeah, that was something that I, I found interesting about um, your sort of articulation of why taxes matter, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. Um, this sort of idea that it's a subscription service into society, that's a really um, sort of easy way to understand um, the justification. But it does leave out this sort of uh, redistributive question, right? This idea that taxes, like taxation is also about leveling the playing field, which is often more sort of controversial. And I'm just wondering sort of what you think about that. Like, should there be billionaires? Uh, <laughs> to what extent should we be using taxes as a tool to level the playing field? Yeah, I mean, so I, I kind of left out one of the major tenets of tax justice, which is this idea of progressive tax, progressively raised, progressively spent. Right. So, I mean, there's you could say like, OK, everyone should pay their taxes. But if, you know, your tax system is overall regressive, that's not great. So what does that mean? It means kind of what we have now, which is that overall, the tax burden falls mostly on people who are in waged labor. It's the point that, you know, basically the ultra rich, because they're able to do all these accounting uh, tricks and secrets and all this kind of stuff of uh, basically escape taxation to a huge extent. So the burden of the tax system is now falling on people who can't afford to escape, right? And tax justice is also about reorienting it back so that you do have that redistribution where everyone pays according to their ability, that you can't escape if you're at the upper you know, echelons of society. And it goes back to this idea of like what I said, like if you're a billionaire, at some point along the line, you have stolen from society. You know, there is, there is no way in the way that the current global economy is set up that you are making a billion dollars without exploiting someone, where you're not exploiting a low tax jurisdiction, where you're not exploiting um, poor labor uh, practice so you don't have to pay people properly, where you're not taking advantage of low safety standards. Somewhere along the line, you are, if you're a billionaire, taking advantage of a lack of infrastructure. Or you're taking advantage of not having to pay for infrastructure, but still extracting from that from that system or that economy. <sighs> and and that's 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 how tax justice tax injustice sorry is manifesting. So Faria, you have a, a talking point here um, in the notes that you sent me prior to our discussion, and I just wanted to know if you wanted to get into this as well. There's tax dodging in, in the context of developed countries. But then, you know, if you really look at how tax dodging impacts developing countries, right? If you're a poor country and you are, you know, the best example I can think of is, say, Malawi, which gave massive, massive tax incentives to British American tobacco and to mining companies uh, to set up shop in Malawi. But that means they get very little to no tax revenue from the mining, from the tobacco plantations that are in the country. So how do you provide public services to your citizens? Often you don't, or you're actually uh, dependent on foreign aid or the IMF 
or um, ex- huge amount of external debt to then try and fund these services. So it's kind of, uh, how, how do I put it? It's like, it's in the first instance, by giving multinationals these incentives, you've punched uh, a hole in your boat, <laughs> in your country's boat. And then, you know, you basically ask the IMF or foreign aid uh, donors for the privilege to rent out a bucket to try and bail out your boat, you know? That's that's the situation uh, that having these kinds of skewed incentives can create for poor countries. Yeah, and then you have to you have to tax like um, agricultural workers and people who are sort of in more precarious positions have to take on a higher burden of the tax. Whereas in the West, they tend to be um, net subsidized, and so there are competitiveness problems there. So it's just like it's shitty all the way down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's shitty all the way down because if you can't tax the biggest source of economic activity in these countries, you're going to bring that hammer down on all sorts of people who don't necessarily deserve it. And you're going to try and tax, as they say, a tax base that isn't there. So this um, practice where multinationals will do the bulk of their economic activity uh, in one country, but shift the profits by being incorporated in a low tax jurisdiction elsewhere is called base erosion and profit shifting for exactly that reason. So by shifting the profit, you're eroding the base of the country from which you've shifted the profits from. Well, I think that thoroughly answers the question that I asked originally, which was why, why is this a problem? (laughs) Sorry, I just went like full galaxy meme brain on y'all. So, (laughs) oh, I love it. No, I love it. It I wanted an in-depth like explanation. I was like, please like enlighten me. I mean, I already, I'm already pro-tax obviously, but it's nice to hear it articulated so beautifully that I'm right. So thank you. (laughs) I actually had a really good example. Um, I used to work for a cruise line. And I was just thinking when I was reading your notes that you sent me free, I was thinking about my cruise line and how the ships are often, they're often flying flags from the Bahamas. And it's a great example of this, like, this, this idea of avoidance of the rules and regulations in countries that have stricter policies to protect like workers and to get companies to pay money. So I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read from a, a, a. It was like a blog, but they phrased it really well. Um, Thetraveler.com, and it was like, a ship registered in the U.S. is governed by United States maritime law, which specifies the wages that must be paid to crew, the environmental safeguards that apply to waste disposal, the certifications for ships officers, and the right of passengers to take action against the cruise operator in a U.S. court of law, to name just a few of the structures. A cruise operator might decide that they would rather operate under a less strict regime, and most do. This means they register in another country and adopt a flag of convenience. And in the cruise industry, the preferred flag is that of the Bahamas. Among other advantages, the Bahamas does not impose any tax on income. Any profit the cruise line makes is untaxed. Neither is there any tax on capital gain if a vessel is sold at a profit. 
So fuck all of that. But like, (laughs) but like, it was just a perfect, like, I was just reading your notes. And it was just a perfect example that came to my head, because I used to work for like a cruise company. And I saw this stuff firsthand. And like, I've read stories of passengers who have been killed on on board the ships. And there's been no way for the federal, like the, the federal government to investigate it in the United States, because they're there are no like they're because they're flying like a Bahamas flag. They don't have to hand over security footage if it's going to make the uh, cruise line look bad to to do so. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and and that's that's exactly the issue. And also, I mean, the, the broader issue is that we allow it. Yeah, yeah, that kind of gets me to um, something that I've been wondering, and maybe listeners have been too. Um, Faria, what are some of the sort of solutions that? Um, might be workable given this like challenging global context? So, I mean, because of the size of the issue. Um, how big is the problem? Wait, how big is it? <laughs> <laughs> how much money is missing, Faria? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I going off script? <laughs> no, no. I just wanted to know that. And it was the perfect way for me to lead in by interrupting so rudely. Please tell me. Yeah, the, the problem's pretty big. Depends on who you ask. So. Uh, the most commonly accepted estimate is also by Gabriel Zuckman, which is at eight trillion U.S. dollars, of which eighty percent is undeclared to tax authorities. Uh, tax Justice Network issued another study about a year and a half ago um, by James Henry, who is a senior advisor to the Tax Justice Network, but also the former chief economist for McKinsey, and he says. The problem is closer to 21 to 32 trillion US dollars being held offshore. Oh, I hate everything. Of <laughs> in these kinds of uh, trusts and shell companies, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's uh, to put it politely, fucking massive. That's how big the problem is. Oh my God. Okay, now tell us how to fix it, please. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll be honest, it's a tough one because. Technically, it isn't illegal, right? Everything that I've described, this idea of incorporating elsewhere, moving your profits, asking for incentives, these aren't illegal. And, you know, because it's not illegal, there's very few incentives for companies not to do these things. So there's a few things you can do. One is just do a bit of research. Like if you're really interested in either supporting or not supporting a company, you can look into where they're incorporated. Often, if you like follow the rabbit hole, you know, the about us and like legal, you know, you click on the kind of gray print, you can see where they're incorporated uh, and, you know, make a decision whether or not you like that or don't like it to support that company. You know, another kind of individual thing you can do is see if the company has a fair tax mark. Now, this is more relevant for people in the UK, uh, which is where this initiative started. Uh, kind of like uh, fair trade, it is a certification process by which, you know, uh, independent accountants and lawyers say, yeah, this company appears to, for all intents and purposes, pay their fair share of tax. They don't have anything in shell companies, or if they do have subsidiaries, they're reporting their tax activities properly, and they're paying the tax that they should. So this is kind of like your your personal checklist. You know, so one is, does it have a fair tax mark? This is right now really only in the UK, but they're trying to expand to Europe and into North America. The other is, you know, looking at where place uh, where companies are incorporated. So 
you know, if you're in Canada or the U.S., the telltale is if it's anything in the Caribbean. So Bahamas, Caymans, British Virgin Islands. If you're in Europe, it's like if it, if the headquarters is in Netherlands, Luxembourg, Ireland. If you're in Asia, often it's Singapore, Macau, Hong Kong. And in Africa, it's Mauritius or Dubai. But the biggest uh, impact and honestly, unfortunately, the hardest thing that you can do to try and solve this problem is through political action. You know, support politicians and platforms that are serious about tackling this issue. You know, uh, in in Canada, the people that are keeping track of the political pulse of these issues is an NGO called Canadians for Tax Fairness. They work very closely with Oxfam Canada uh, and Global Witness and Publish What You Pay to look at how big the problem is you know, within Canada. They have a report called Stop Snowwashing, which looks at actually uh, the use of Canada's real estate markets to launder money. Yeah, and, and so they're really the people I would point particularly Canadian listeners to, but, you know, depending on where your listeners are, there are a few international coalitions where you can see who, you know, at your national level is doing the good work. And so the international coalition is the Global Alliance for Tax Justice, which is made up of regional uh, alliances that are then made up of national organizations working on these issues. Um, and often when you go to those pages uh, or to the, to the pages of those organizations, you can see yeah, who who are the politicians? Who um, are the political entities that are either helping or hindering these efforts? And put your support there. And uh, do you have any sense of like what um, the groups that are acting on these kinds of issues? What are some of the policies that they want to see? It's called the ABCs of tax transparency. Well, that's fun. <laughs> is the uh, you know is the shorthand for it? So AB- ABCs are. A is automatic exchange of information. This is actually now happening at the OECD OECD level, um, which is a big policy. And this is so that if you are like me, a Canadian, and you set up a bank account in the UK, right, automatically, all my information, my banking information will be transmitted from the UK to Canada, because I've used my Canadian passport to set up my bank account. So what this means is that like, if you're someone who is setting up a bunch of accounts all across the world, and you're a Canadian citizen, Canada will get that information automatically. They don't have to trace it down. They don't have to do an audit to say like, hey, you look kind of sketchy. You seem to be driving a Porsche, but are (laughs) reporting $0 income in Canada. How's that happening? They will be able to tell you know, the Canadian tax authorities will have this information on file, like to say like, oh, you seem to have five accounts in the Cayman Islands. What's up with that? Um, And to have this happen automatically, you know, uh, on an annual basis. B is beneficial ownership registries. So the thing with trusts and why people love them is that you don't have to list who benefits from the trust, right? You can you can incorporate a trust and say, okay, uh, company X is the owner of this trust. You don't have to disclose who owns company X. Uh, you don't have to disclose from the trust who is receiving the income from it. 
And so beneficial public registries of beneficial ownership is exactly what it sounds like. So if you are a country like the Caymans and you have thousands, hundreds and thousands of trusts incorporated in your country, you need to publicly put out there in these public registries who owns the trust, who like, and who is a flesh and blood person benefiting from each trust. This allows you to track who has wealth where. So uh, as an example, that's what the Panama Papers were. Essentially, they were a leak of who were the beneficial owners of a bunch of trusts being held in Panama, a bunch of shell companies and trusts being held in Panama, and that which is why it was a big deal. The C is country by country reporting. So this is what we were talking about earlier, where like, yeah, you can be headquartered in Ireland, but if all your income is being earned in, say, the U.S., you need to, we want to ask companies to say, show us by every country you operate in, what is the actual volume of your economic activity? And what are the taxes you've paid in every jurisdiction? So that often will show the thing where like, okay, in Ireland, we have 5,000 employees and we have reported uh, profits of $10 billion of which we've paid, say, 2% tax. And in the US, we employ 50,000 uh, employees. We report zero income there, so we pay zero tax. You know, you can put two and two together there and say, well, that seems not great. So it's all these things about putting, putting it all out there so that, you know, politicians, the general public, supreme audit institutions, all these like accountability actors that we have can put two and two together to say, hey, you're not paying your fair share of tax. Yeah, I guess the tough thing with all of those, at least it seems to me, is just that um, like the Bahamas doesn't have very much incentive to want to implement them. Um, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. But I mean, there are ways of, uh, you know, compelling these sorts of compliance. So one is like, if the OECD starts saying, if you want to trade or do financial transactions with the OECD, you have to meet these standards. The OECD is a very powerful block of countries. Or you push the UK, uh, which has you know all these uh, crown dependencies and territories. If you ask the UK to, uh, or you get parliamentarians in the UK to pass laws to say like, in order to do business with the UK, you need to meet these standards. Okay, so there are like there are powers that states have that they haven't been using that they could use. Yeah. And which is why a lot of this lobbying, like how do I put this? Yes, the impact, the bad impact happens to be on or the the large portion of uh the pernicious impact happens to be on developing countries, but it's developed countries and the politics of developed countries that can really shift this imbalance or like really address this injustice. Right, because it's entities like the OECD, it's entities like the G7, the G20, the EU, where if those are the countries that all of a sudden say, you need to meet these standards to do business with us, everyone's going to fall in line. And which is why how, you know, those of us who are Canadian, those of us who are German, those of us who are American, how we vote and support politics and policies that bring about these changes is very important. Well, that's a somewhat hopeful note. 
they can potentially influence those policies. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, let me put it to you this way. Um, automatic exchange of information is happening in the OECD. We are getting partial, partially public uh, registries of beneficial ownership or the fact that these registries are being kept is, is a new step. Country by country reporting is already happening at the OECD. 2019 is the first year we have data for it. You know, and when these policies were first proposed in 2005, people were like, you're dreaming. Forget about it. It's <laughs> never going to happen. But 15 years later, which is a relatively short time in politics, right, particularly global politics, international politics, these things are made manifest. It's nice that um, one of the, the things that we thought were, was impossible but is possible is actually a positive thing <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. I mean, it's just that these things take time. And, you know, one of the key things that I think is critical to the fight is this idea that we now have among regular people that this is bad, that this is immoral. You know, 15 years ago, people were like, well, that's the smart thing to do. But now I think on a whole, if you talk to people about tax evasion and avoidance, people are like, no, that's really bad. And we should stop people from doing it. And that alone makes me help. Eat billionaires. <laughs> yeah, eat billionaires. You know, you do these public opinion polls and people are saying like, yeah, there is such a thing as too rich. This gives me hope. It means that people can be mobilized. It's just about making sure, you know, we can connect people to those avenues of mobilization. So, you know, that organizations like Canadians for Tax Fairness can reach more people or do better work and 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 connect to politicians so that you can move the needle on this. Well, and the more that this changes, like slowly um, but surely, the faster it'll kind of happen, I guess, over time. Because if politicians suddenly aren't being subsidized entirely by private entities, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll be less likely to push policies that benefit those private entities and... Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, let's not forget, um, a revolt is a very good incentive to stop a revolt. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah. So maybe a little too real given that it's election day in America. <laughs> yeah. Today is election day. <laughs> and yeah. Walmart stopped selling guns. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to say our call to action is to revolt, but I actually take that back. No, mm -mm, don't do it. Not today. You know, or a revolt nearby can be helpful. I was actually uh, reading for work today that one of the earliest anti-poverty policies uh, in the 19th century in England and Wales was because the French Revolution happened and the landed gentry were like, well, we don't want to cause so much inequality that people move to the cities start talking to each other and start a revolution. So we better make sure that in these communities, people have some measure of uh, fairness and equity. Yeah, seeing uh, the guillotines getting rolled out uh, <laughs> a whole mile away. <laughs> exactly. I do have one more question. I'm I'm curious um, for you, for your thoughts on on the wealth tax and yes, I was going to ask that too. <laughs> How much should we be focusing on it? Do you think it's a good thing? Things like that. Absolutely. Wealth is not taxed enough, number one, as I pointed out, because a lot of wealth is held in assets and capital, and it is under tax relative to um, income from labor. I think, and this is a very sincere thought, and it's very out there, but if we believe in a meritocracy, then inheritance tax or wealth taxes should be at 100%. Like at the top levels? 
Yeah, because if you believe that you're doing things on your own merit, you shouldn't need to have the leg up from your parents. And in fact, if you were born rich, if you're born into a well-off family, throughout your lifetime already, while your parents are alive, you have accrued the advantages of that wealth because you probably went to better schools, you lived in better housing, you had better access to like all these extracurricular uh educational experiences, you have better health. You're more likely to be hired by your parents' rich friends who are going to put you into <laughs> a good job. Yes, yeah. you have better social social connections. Looking at you, Jared Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> and I sincerely mean this. I think like truly, I think a wealth tax of a hundred percent, particularly on generational wealth, is not out of, you know, order. But, you know, so do I broadly think a wealth tax is a good idea? Yes. But at like the 2%, maybe it's not all that valuable or you, you think it should be a lot higher? No, because there's so much wealth. There's so much wealth. I mean, the 21 to $32 trillion or even the $8 trillion is what's held sort of secretly. So, you know, not secretly, it's still like $1 to $2 trillion in any, particularly in North America. Yeah, I'm trying to remember Oxfam always puts out those stats that are like how many people own like the same amount as like 50% of the population. I think it's I think it's 28 now. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> so for this episode, you guys, I was trying to figure out how much money there is in the world. And that was a task that gave me a headache. And that's why I stopped doing any more work for this episode after this. But um, <laughs> I found a quote from marketwatch.com that I'm going to read now. The amount of money that exists changes depending on how we define it. The more abstract definition of money we use, the higher the number is. For purists who believe money, quote, end, unquote, uh, refers only to physical narrow money, so banknotes, coins, and money deposited in saving or checking accounts, the total is somewhere around $36.8 trillion. If you're looking at broad money, which also includes any money held in easily accessible accounts, the number is about $90.4 trillion. But for those preferring an even broader interpretation, including cryptocurrencies, plus above ground gold supply, uh, and funds invested in various financial products like derivatives, the amount is in the quadrillions. Um, and then I added a note that says, that says uh, one quadrillion has 15 zeros for a reference. Uh, as for money owned by every single person and country in the world, the grand total is $215 trillion. So for between eight and 30 trillion to be missing, that's a fuck ton. Yes, the the, the official metric, fuck ton. No, I, I, yeah, I'm very, I'm very serious. <laughs> but like, you know, is, is a 2% wealth tax worth it? Absolutely. But it should be higher. <laughs> don't don't let radicals like me tell tell y'all what to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're all radicals here. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, Faria. This has been enlightening. Uh I'm gonna go take a bath now, I think. <laughs> uh do you have a call to action for the audience beyond voting? Because it's gonna be too late by the time this the episode comes out. <laughs> yeah, I, I would as I said, um, Depending on where you are, go to the Global Alliance for Tax Justice website. Look for whichever region you're in. It will take you to the Regional uh, Alliance for Tax Justice. And then look for who is the premier tax justice organization within your country and support their work. 
Love it. Yes. That's great. That's a really good one. Um, and where where can listeners find you if they want to see all of your amazing work and or tweets? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm just Faria Mohudin, all one word. Uh, I think they will definitely have to look at show notes to see how my name is spelt. Um, <laughs> the other thing is if they go to the International Budget Partnership website and they look at the staff page, uh, you can also find my information there. It's listed alphabetically, so you, all you need to look for Faria, and then you'll see all me, uh, my profile and all my information there. Yes, sweet. We can be found on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. Super fun stuff for us. Oh boy! Thanks again for joining us, Faria. Honestly, I know I know this is probably a really fun topic for you to talk about constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, yes. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, we'll catch up. Oh, wait. No, wait. Stop. There was one more thing I needed to do to uh, this episode that I was thinking of in the middle that I completely forgot. I was supposed to introduce Kristen as Dr. Kristen Pugh. And now we're just going to close off with that. Oh, yes. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first episode we've recorded since Kristen has officially finished her PhD. And now we are hosted by a bona fide expert and me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bonafide so, expert and me. So thank you for joining us for this inaugural uh, episode, Faria, where we can congratulate Kristen on finishing her PhD. Dr. Pugh, yes. Just like sliding across that finish line very slowly. <laughs> it's It's been an honor and a pleasure, truly. <laughs> All right. That's it. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>